Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Climate change deniers, anti-vaxxers, and creationists are not the fringe. They make up a significant portion of the American population, one with enormous power. In his new book, The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience, my guest, Boston University philosopher of science, Lee McIntyre, argues that in order to challenge these ideas, we must be able to explain what's so special about science. We need to clearly lay out why the scientist who's testing and retesting, changing their hypothesis and testing again should be trusted over someone sharing dubious anecdotes and proof on social media. The book is at once an accessible philosophical examination of science's power and a rallying cry for those concerned about the grave harm being caused by pseudoscience and science denialism. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Lee McIntyre. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. You've written a new book, The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. It's really interesting that we live in an age that has benefited more from science and from scientific discovery than any other age, you know, any other age in human history. And yet there is often the people's respect for knowledge about science, the scientific method, it doesn't seem to correspond to the benefits that the wider public gets yeah. from it. Is that a fair statement, you think? I, I think it is. Uh, I mean, I, I think that there are a couple of things going on there. Uh, one is maybe the argument that people never really did understand science. They just trusted it more uh, in the past because they had, uh, in a previous year, a greater t- a trust for experts. Uh, there was a terrific book by uh, Tom Nichols recently called The Death of Expertise. Fr- friend friend where, of the show. He's been on the show. Okay. He is, he is a so, five, do you know he is a five-time Jeopardy winner? I didn't know that. I'm not surprised. He's a he, smart guy. Amazing guy. Amazing <laughs> guy. So, so based on that work, I think that what happens is that people are just skeptical of experts in general, and I think that science gets caught up in that. Um, and you know, one thing that goes on today, I mean, maybe one reason why people are skeptical of experts is because uh, they're so attracted to be able to just go to Google and find the answer they think to anything that they want, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. But, you know, I think of uh, Jenny McCarthy, uh, the famous anti-vaxxer and famous for other things, who says um, that she has a degree from the University of Google. And <laughs> I think that's the way that people think about it. They, they just they think that, well, I don't need the, the experts and um, I can uh, study things for myself. It's sort of flummoxing why they pick and choose, why they trust the experts who build their plane, but they don't trust the experts who develop their vaccine. But maybe that's a different story. Yeah, T.S. Eliot once remarked in an essay that the mark of someone that's educated is twofold. One, they have a general sense about what they don't know. And one, and when they acquire new knowledge, they have a, a general sense of where it fits with the rest of the knowledge they acquire, they, they've acquired. And he yeah. remarks that that's why D.H. Lawrence is incredibly intelligent, but exhibits no marks of education. 
<laughs> and, and that's and that's what right i mean the sort of google uh, google md or the university of google it it assumes that that data is knowledge right or something like that that, mm-hmm. that, that right we're, we're very often that's right people have no sense of how that fits in with the rest of what they know or the reality around them yeah no i i think that's right i mean what thing that's lost on people is that scientists um have a particular way of reasoning and so it's not just people can't just as you said know the data they can't just know the facts they have to know how to reason based on the facts or based on the evidence and that's something that uh, scientists learn how to do when they're in graduate school one thing they unfortunately don't learn how to do is to communicate that to a lay public and so people i think consider themselves experts when they have the same facts that scientists or their doctor or somebody like that has, but they, they don't really know how to, how to reason. Part of it's because they don't understand statistics and probability, I think, but part of it's just that it's, it's so easy to just give in to cognitive bias and think that you know something when you don't. Yeah. Aristotle, I think, is wrong in the sense that he, when he says we're rational animals, I think we're more like rationalizing animals. <laughs> They're very often, you know, what is that in the big chill Jeff Goldblum's character says, a human being can get through a day without food or without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And that's so much of the challenge, right? That we, we see in, 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 when we hear scientific discoveries or things like this or, or things about vaccines, we just interpret it within our rationalizing framework very often. I, and yes, and things have not changed. Uh, I mean, if you so that that's an interesting question, right? Because if you look back to that, you know, that same era with Aristotle a little bit before, Socrates felt that false knowledge was a bigger uh, danger than ignorance. Because if somebody was ignorant, they could still learn. They didn't know the thing, and they knew that they didn't know. But if they think that they know and they don't really, then you've got a problem on your hands. So that I mean, that's all very human. That's been with us for a long time. And by the way, science denial has been with us for a long time, too. I mean, look at Galileo or Giordano Bruno or Darwin. I mean, th- there was a lot of pushback, uh, to say the least, uh, in earlier eras against science. The thing that's different now is this just overwhelmingly easy access to data without any training in how to use it. And so people are, as we both said, uh, just, you know, not, not capable of reasoning in the same way that scientists do. Now they can learn. And I, and I, that's one reason that I wrote the scientific attitude is because I want people to appreciate what I think is distinctive about science. And then they can have not only have more appreciation for it, but they can learn how to do it. I've done this exercise in groups before where I've asked people to define a sp- or, you know, and, and, and they're, they're inevitably have a, like, huh. And we start by saying, well, give me some examples of sports. That's a lot easier. People say, you know, mm-hmm. baseball, basketball, football. and then so well, what's the essence of a sport? If we're going to say, yeah, well, then people say, well, it's a team. Well, what if you're in bowling or golf or whatever? It, well, it's this or that. And, and then we start getting into is chess a sport is that, you know, it, we, like, yeah. inevitably you get, it's one of those things like, what did Augustine say? I know what time is until you ask me what it is. And then I have, yeah. no you have a great discussion of this in the first section of the book about the issues of demarcation and in the philosophy of science and how th- this has been a challenge to say, what's science? What is science? How do you know something is scientific? Yeah. What's the difference? Between, you have this great distinction between science, you know, the non-science, which can be other forms of learning, which even may use empirical data, but not, 
the entire scientific attitude as you describe it. And then pseudoscience, right? Things that yeah. purport to be science, like maybe astrology or something that, that, and, and you, you wrestle through this and this is one of the things that lives with us to this day, right? The demarcation issue. What, when we're saying this conference is for scientists, who gets to go? Yeah, no, it's, uh, and you bring up a good point because philosophers of science have been wrestling with that problem for a hundred years now. I mean, Karl Popper, who was made, maybe made the, the greatest uh, mark on this, did his original work in 1919. So, I mean, it's it's been a while. And yeah, I think if they were going to come up with a solid criteria of demarcation, they would have done it by now. Um, that's not to say that there's no difference between science and non-science or between science and pseudoscience. It's just that, as you said, when you try to get somebody to define it, right, to like define what's sport. Um, then, especially if they're philosophers, they start to worry about all of these tiny problems of logic that end up not being tiny at all, trying to figure out with demarcation what's a necessary and sufficient condition. The, these are all, I mean, these are broken brains over decades to try to get this right. And, if they, and they, they have not been able to get it right. And I think that the reason is because uh, it, it can't be done on a logical basis. It can't be done on a methodological basis. I don't think there is such a thing as quote unquote scientific method. And, yeah. yeah. You and, say in your book that like, basically, it, I mean, and this is probably much to the frustration of, uh, you know, high school <laughs> science teachers, but there is right. no scientific, like we all learn this thing so. you, that you move from, you know, observation to hypothesis is if you just walk yeah. around, Oh, look at that. That's interesting. Let's know a theory that very, that, that these things are all often involved in scientific discovery, but not in any formulaic this, bef That's this right. before that, because That's otherwise, right. if you just, you know, there's subjective elements. Otherwise, why would you be observing stones and, and not butterflies? Right. I mean, there, there, there are pulls in other, in yeah. certain directions. I mean, most, I think I also said in the book that most philosophers of science agree on this. Even, even Karl Popper agreed that it, scientific method was, was a myth. Because, I mean, if you think of it like a recipe or a checklist, there, there's, there's no order of operations that you can do to make scientific discovery. Um, but what I argue in my book is that it, it's, there is, a, there is a, a process of science, there's a way of thinking. But I think that what guides it is not any conversations about, well, now we need to find some predictions or now we need to test our theory. It's this attitude. It's the attitude of saying, I'm going to be responsive to evidence. And if the evidence doesn't bear out my theory, I'm going to have to either abandon it or change it. Whatever tools they need to do that, be it more observation or make a prediction and test it, um, you know, compare it to some other theory that, that was similar, what, whatever tools they need to do that, uh, I, you know, they're going to do. But it's what's really distinctive about science, I think, not, not a sufficient for a criteria of demarcation, a formal criteria of demarcation. But I think that what really marks off the essential difference between science and non-science is the attitude that scientists have toward evidence. Yeah. And you make that move, right? You say, look, it, I think for the scientific attitude option allows you to say, hey, I, I can, by, by sort of giving up the quest for all sufficiency, right? And, and sticking with, hey, what the, the base level you you got a better chance at at manageable demarcation is what you're saying because there are, there are always going to be border cases or specific right. cases but 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 by yeah. and large the scientific attitude will uh, from the border to the middle you'll see it in all of the the scientists and all of the scientific practice yeah. 
it it does a pretty good job. I mean, I I gave up on the idea that it would get get it perfect. That is because I wasn't trying to get it perfect. I wasn't trying to do one of these, you know, all and only things that that philosophers do. What I was trying to do was to get most of the sorting correct so that people could understand the distinction between something like science and pseudoscience or or with something like fraud, uh, which is which is really important to to be able to draw those sorts of distinctions. I mean, most I think that most philosophers of science deep down, they know what's science and they know what's not, and you know, intuitively. But then the race is to find a formal way to do it. And what I decided was, look, uh, th- why do we need a formal way to do it? And I mean, and it's not just to say that we should just go by intuition, but let's let's identify something that we can use to defend science and also which we can use to grow science in other disciplines that, you know, can be emulated. And that's the scientific attitude. It's this value, which, which is almost forbidden in the, uh, in the field. I mean, you're, you're not supposed to talk about values. There's this famous fact value distinction. And, you know, to talk about that, the, the thing that separates scientists is one of their values that that's, uh, I think hard for some people to wrap their head around though. I, I mean, I didn't invent that idea. There are others who, who had it first and have written about it, but it's, uh, it's getting some mileage now. It's interesting. One thinker, John frame, a guy teaches in Florida that, that he, he said that, you know, he explains to students, you know, in the quest for knowledge, all right, let's start with, you know, logic metaphysics and ethics or value theory well which is most important where do you start with he's like well how do you start because well all right let's start with metaphysics or being what's out there well again do you start with rocks or trees there you're into value theory and and then how do you sort out the things well then you're into epistemology or how do you know that that's there you're into logic and epistemology these things oftentimes when when when, i mean we almost have to sort them out discreetly right we have to, to for the purpose of thinking about them but in the actual process of knowing and discovery these things and things like values and facts all all interact and and that's not a problem if you have the scientific attitude right i mean that, that's that's right if you if you've got the right attitude you you can handle that the, but the here here's the real here's where the rubber meets the road with this is that if philosophers just worried about coming up with a criteria of demarcation that met their logical criteria or scientists only worried about uh sharing their findings and not how they found them with the public that sort of leaves science undefended i mean we can always point to the successes of science but i have to say i've been somewhat worried over the last decade and a half that science credit the credibility of science is losing ground despite all the the wonderful things that it does and i I think science is wonderful i don't think that the friends of science, the scientists and the friends of science have been defending it adequately. And I think that one reason they haven't been defending it adequately is because they've been so um, unable to figure out how to respond to some of the misconceptions that people have about science. It's easy to talk about scientific method. It's easy to talk about proof and certainty, but those are not really things that scientists uh, are, are involved with. Uh, and I think that I'd like to see scientists talk more about probability, about how they actually do their work, about data sharing, about replication, about peer review, because I, I just think that the lay public, they just really don't get it about how rigorous it is for scientists to come up with their theories. Yeah, there's a book I, I'm fond of by a guy named Leslie Newbigin called Proper Confidence. It's a very it's about knowledge and modernity. He has these 
simple chapter outlines. The first is faith is the way to knowledge. And by faith, he's not talking explicitly religious faith. He's just talking about, you know, all knowledge has a fiduciary framework. You can't go in the 10th grade chemistry class and say, I'm not going to believe anything in the textbook until I do all the experiments myself. Or there's a certain dependence right. on what's gone before. <laughs> That's right. You have to. Yeah. And the second chapter is doubt is the way to the truth that, that, you, you yeah. everyone that you have to doubt yeah. and it's part of the scientific and his third yeah, you said it and his you third chapter it. is certainty is the way to nihilism and he basically thinks that the myth of certainty uh, that is, oh, is i'm gonna read that book yeah it's a fantastic book but but that i i think that you point out in the book that certainty has been a problem for people who are trying to demarcate and and, and help under help people understand what science is it's also a problem for people that critique science unreflectively yes. because right. if a scientist and uh, any honest scientist say, is going to say uh, we're we're not certain of anything on one level because part of of what the scientific method uh, scientific attitude involves is of course any experience unusual experience could 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 provide That's data right. that would falsify a theory but most scientists on many given theories don't think that thing's going to come around but it could so so th- i feel like this is the way people sort of trap scientists well are you absolutely yeah, certain or something like that? They well, do. I, I, they do. We're, we're, I think that, that that certainty is often the way to nihilism, and it's, it's almost a term that's used combatively, not constructively. I, I think you, you hit it exactly nail on the head there, because one thing that science deniers, I mean, listen to the phrases that they use. They'll say climate change isn't settled science, or that evolution is just a theory, or that they're waiting for more data to come in. Um, and that's their way of saying, well, when you can prove it, then get back to me. But I, that's a way of stopping the conversation. And that's also a way of saying, well, until you can prove it, my theory is just as likely to be true as any scientific theory, which is not the case, right? So uh, I, I think that scientists, and, and I mean, you captured it so so well in your description of the the book, uh, the, the, the earlier, the, the other fellow's book, which I've got to write down and read now, uh, which is that Scientists are walking this tightrope where they've got to be open to new ideas, but they've also got to be skeptical enough to test any new ideas before they accept them. They've got to do both. They've got to do both at the at the same time, and uh, that's you know that's an important process. It's an important part of the mindset. What they can't do is clamp down on any given idea and say, "100 percent, I'm sure that that's true." Uh, and the thing to realize is because that's really that's not how science works. I mean, it's not a mere annoyance that um, oh maybe somebody could come along and refute my theory. That's what makes science great because scientists are capable of having the flexibility of mind to respond to new evidence when it comes in. Now, individual scientists can deny and go to their grave believing that they were right. That that you know sometimes happens. But when I say science, I mean the community of scientists. Some people get read out of the profession, but the, but the discipline moves on. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? 
or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You talk in the in, earlier in the book about Popper, and you also talk about Thomas Kuhn and paradigm theory, and how I mean Kuhn describes science as as evolving often within a paradigm. Say say you're Newton's paradigm, it, it it grows sort of incrementally, right? And then you have Einstein, an Einstein Einsteinian kind of paradigm, relativistic physics or something, and it, and you've almost got to switch assumptions, right? But that doesn't happen all that often and, and well, when it does it's it's pretty huge and that you know that these are the that that oftentimes on the borderline is the is the cases where you have where you're arguing between paradigms right where you're saying well hey yeah. you can only kind of see it this way if you change assumptions and my paradigm can explain everything over there but there's some things over here that can't explain you know can't do the other yeah. and, and that these are and that that it's 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 there there is subjectivity to it, but it's subjectivity embedded within, as you say, a kind of rigor, uh, yep. a, a empirical data, skepticism, and a communal fidelity and accountability, so that you're it, yep. it's a communal uh, right. project, right? So it's not that there's no messiness or anything involved, but 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 that that messiness is in any human endeavor is 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 has as it as its kind of uh, guardrails a sort of rigorous commitment to empiricism and self-examination. Yeah. And, and I, and I think you, you put that well, I mean, even Kuhn, of course, he believed in the, the importance of evidence. He just didn't think that uh, it, it was determinative in, in every case, but, but notice that the thing that you just described that period, when some people are making one set of assumptions, some are making another set of assumptions that that chapter in his book is called crisis. Okay. Right, yeah. That's when people really don't know, and it doesn't last very long. And then the, he makes the case that they radically switch from one paradigm to another and get back to normal science, which is supposed to the work of science. Now, there are various people who argue that that's not how science actually works. It's too idealized a view. But I think he's got something to this idea that uh, you know science is about evidence. But it's also about how people reason on the basis of that evidence. And you can have competing views and they clash against one another. And that's to the virtue of science that that happens. Because if you just had a view that you thought was correct uh, and you didn't even need to consider any other data, that really stops being science. I mean, I mean, look at the revolution from Newton to Einstein. That was because uh, physicists were were open to to new data, and then compare that 
Compare that to what happens with science denial, where if you try to give any piece of evidence to convince somebody, uh, say, who's an anti-vaxxer, that they're wrong, they'll find some conspiracy theory or some reason why that evidence should be discounted. Um, so they call often science deniers call themselves skeptics. They're not. They're not true skeptics because what they're doing is they're they're having an unreasonably high standard for the things that uh, that they don't want to believe, and sometimes they're completely gullible about the things that they do want to believe. Yeah, C.S. Lewis says you don't want to you want to doubt some things, not everything. You want to be able to see through the the window uh, so that you can see the rose garden outside, not see through the rose garden as well. But yeah, yeah, that's sort of it's a selective see through, right? I only, I want to see through everything here and see through nothing over here right with the and, and okay. anti-vaxxing too it's isn't it the strangest thing that like this is right if if you're gonna i mean the bang for your buck with fruits of scientific the scientific endeavor and, and, and discovery i mean next to clean water mm-hmm. I, I, vaccines have to be the biggest bang for the buck in civilization right just i mean just for quality of life, it's harder to imagine something that's a better investment. And, and, and look what's happening now. 700 measles cases in 22 states. And uh, I've heard measles described as exquisitely contagious. I mean, if you have somebody with measles in a room and they leave the room, two hours later, yeah, the yeah, droplets yeah. are still in the room. So, I, I mean, one thing that's happening It's not now like is, the HIV virus. It's, once it gets in the air, it's not right. right. Yeah. It, yeah. That you could, this will be around for, yeah, for hours and hours so, and hours. So, this is... And, and I mean, also think about the fact that there are certain people who can't be vaccinated, not that they won't, but that they can't. Uh, children, babies, you know, under the age of one, people who are immune compromised. Um, so, you know, there are vulnerable people out there who are depending on herd immunity. Um, and if the people who can get vaccinated don't, then you have the sorts of outbreaks that we're, that we're seeing. I just got back from a trip earlier in the year to Italy where the government is is now officially anti-vax. So they they had a law that school children had to be vaccinated. The new government came in and wanted to overturn that law. Now, as the measles cases increased, they backed off on that and said, well, we're going to study it for a year, leave the law in place while we do. But you know, you, you just you look at the high government officials who are saying that vaccines are useless and in some cases dangerous. That was a quotation from one of their, I don't think it was their health minister, but it was uh, the vice prime minister, something like that. I mean, that that's really appalling. Think of all the damage that can be done. People sometimes think that science denial isn't dangerous, but it really is. You know, there's, the libertarians had a campaign where they were trying to get all these libertarians to move to New Hampshire because it's so easy to get people elected because the representative proportions. And so the, the idea was we could have, make New Hampshire the mm. libertarian. Maybe you could start a campaign where, like, we section off a part of an unpopulated state and say, hey, your anti-vax is great. We'll subsidize you moving here. We got walls around it, you know, like a bubble. You guys can have a great time, you know. <laughs> See how it works for, yeah, for a couple decades. There, there was an article in the – there was an op-ed. <laughs> that's right. There was an article in the uh, Washington Post recently. I think it was Juliet Kayyem who, who made the argument that there should start to be fines. Uh, there should start to be, uh, you know, real consequences – for people who don't vaccinate because it's uh, affecting the, the rest of us so much. Yeah, you have a great quote in the book from Ted Cruz where he's, you know, again, this is sort of in the interest of climate change denial. And, and Cruz says, you know, I don't trust a scientist 
that doesn't doubt science. You know, and he says it in that, you know, earnest kind of, yeah. you know, he's so That's earnest. That's a good impression uh, of Ted he, Cruz. Oh, gosh, he's so, <laughs> you know, I, you know I was, uh, uh, what did Alfred could say? He's like, I, I like Ted Cruz more than most people do in the Senate, and I can't effing stand him. He's like, he, he's like, the <laughs> Senate, he's like, the Senate's a pretty small little, little office kind of culture. And he's like, you know, he's like the guy that comes in at lunch and cooks fish in the microwave, you know, in the break room. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but that's that's an example, right? Used that this is that 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 kind of again, it, it, it's almost like that 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 rather than the he's talking, he's not talking about the kind of skepticism built into the scientific attitude no. that's paired with communal standards, no. accountability empirical data sets and things like that he's just talking about well you know a kind of again almost almost nihilism. i mean this is just funny when you have standard. when you have conservatives arguing for nihilism <laughs> it, it's a it, it's a it's a double standard i mean ted cruz should know better both of his parents are i don't know if they're they're scientists but they're in the scientific profession somehow and um i mean he's he's a smart guy um and, and you know, so the the question is, does he really believe what he's saying about climate change or not? You know, no, nobody's quite really sure. But what he's obviously doing when he says something like that is he's cherry picking, right? Because what Ted Cruz does is he says, well, you know, you show me a scientist who doesn't doubt science and, you know, they're not really a scientist because a true scientist doubts everything. Well, okay, but why is he so selective? Why does he pick in, in the global warming debate in particular, why does he harp on that one graph, which shows, you know, a spike in global temperatures in 1998, which is, by the way, when El Nino happened. So you can't use that as your baseline. That, that's the favorite of people to say, you know, well, uh, climate, uh, the global temperature hasn't risen in the last 17 years. Well, if you look at 1998 as your as your baseline and, you know, go go forward, not till today, but till 2015, maybe it looks like it hasn't gone up. But then what they discovered is that that graph was actually flawed and they had to correct it. But Ted Cruz kept using the old one. So, see, that's not that's not skepticism. That's cherry picking. That's somebody who already knows what they want to be true. And they're going out and they're looking for the evidence to prove it. So he's he's really he's either giving into or he's exploiting confirmation bias. And that that's something that scientists are, are not supposed to do. Yeah. And the problem with confirmation bias, right? So certain studies are right, that, that the more educated you get, sometimes it just gets worse because, yeah. you know, more sources that, that you, you well, could cherry pick from a wider, uh, wider false knowledge know, thing of cherries. Socrates. Right. So Socrates said it. They're the people with the false knowledge. Right. Because if you're more educated, you might think, well, I already know something about that, even when you don't. You know, the, it's, it strikes me as there's a parallel here among sort of creation science advocates. I mean, most days, most people I, I, I know some people like fairly, I think fairly well that that would be in this sort of young earth point of view of reality. But most days they trust science more than their Bibles. I mean, they don't sit outside waiting for the new iPhone going, yeah, like this thing's going to be impressive. Uh, electronics from the people that brought us the study of electrons. Or they don't get on a plane and go, oh, yeah, like we got a 50-50 chance of getting off the ground. Come on, air, physics. But all of a sudden, with carbon dating, they're an expert. You know what I mean? That, that, that's, that all, you know, in certain well, fields, it's totally unreliable. <laughs> why, why does that happen? I mean, it happens because uh, the ideology comes, comes first. You know, in November 2018, I went to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver because I study science deniers 
for a living, and I, you know, I wanted to see what I considered to be the worst Howard, possible H- Howard, case. Howard Stern sends like staff people to this, so I've heard Does he? <laughs> like to interview people. And I they, must say they weren't they weren't there. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's, Howard Stern wasn't there. I, I think he has like people on his staff that go with record. I, I have to say, it's at the same time tragic and disheartening and hilarious. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it, the the thing that you learn when you're actually there is that they're dead serious about this. They're they're dead and their their beliefs will not be moved, whatever you know, whatever the evidence is. And so, what's uh, I think the thing that you're, you're identifying there, what's so disheartening about it, is that they're respond. I mean, they claim that their belief is based on evidence. But they're responding to evidence in exactly the wrong sorts of ways. The whole thing seems to be sort of based on conspiracy theory. Meanwhile, they're on their iPhones and they took a plane to get there. And the Flat Earth International Conference website has satellite uh, uh, you know, feed to, to its uh, traffic, right? And you know what's great? So, they, I mean, they advertise the, the conference as having people from all around the globe. The globe, yeah. <laughs> That's right. You can't write that. Like <laughs> yeah, that was that was a little ironic. I think that they did that. That's there was some comment on that at the time. But the cups had the, had the Earth on them, uh, and, and you know we're we're round, of course, because they were cups. And there was some commentary on that. But I mean, even they catch themselves sometimes because they they'll also say that they all used to be globalists, and then they had their awakening when they embraced flat Earth. And it, it was a, a very fascinating thing for me professionally to be there because there were 600 science deniers and me and, you know, some media who didn't, you know, stay for the whole thing. I stayed for the whole thing, had conversations, took people to dinner, you know, really engaged them at, you know, cause I wanted to assess their reasoning. You can't now, convince how did, them now, how, does that, how does that, okay. No, so I just want to role play this here. So you're sitting down at dinner yeah. with a flat earther, yeah. you tell them, "Hey, I'm a philosopher of science," and I mean, do yeah. you, and and what do they say? I mean, are they adversarial? Are they? I mean, are, are... I, I'll I'll tell you. I had a, I had a dinner with a guy. It was two two and a half hours, and he was sharp. He was intelligent. I, I liked him. I mean, he was a, he was a good debater. I sat down, and I mean, he knew who I was. I bought him dinner, and I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to try to convince you. I'm a philosopher of science. I'm going to try to convince you." He said, "Okay, but I'm going to try to convince you." Okay, you know, game on. And we had a really rip-snorting good uh, conversation. Uh, but there were moments in it when he would uh, sort of abandon whatever uh, reasoning strategy he had to move to something else because I watched him sort of feel like, oh, that's too dangerous. I can't say that. I'll give you an example. We talked, my, my big question to him, my, my big philosopher's question was, what would it take to prove to you that you were wrong? So that that's a that's a heavy question. And he said, you know, I would have to see it for myself. You know, I would have to go up in a rocket. And I was thinking, you know, Elon Musk, you know, what, what can we do? Because I mean, I could crowdfund amongst my friends. We could probably get somebody a ride, you know. Uh, and but he, he then he finally he took it back and he said, no, because the window in the rocket might be curved. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but that's a perfect example, right? That's a perfect example of the wrong way to, to respond to evidence because, you know, I was giving him a chance to to tell me, you know, what could you show me uh, that, that, you know, would prove me wrong? And, you know, we were going to have an intelligent discussion about it. But everything I mentioned to him is a possibility. He found some reason to reject it. We finally agreed to a trip over Antarctica. And I mean, we shook hands on it. I was going to fund him to a trip over Antarctica because they think that Antarctica's 
a mountain range spread out along the, the, the edge of the Earth. They think it's a disk and Antarctica is out around the edge. And so if you could fly over Antarctica, then they would be wrong. Right. Um, and so we had this whole thing worked out about whether the plane was going to stop to refuel or not. And if it didn't stop to refuel, then I was right. If it had to stop to refuel, then he was right. But he, he ultimately he took it all back. And he said the reason he took it back was because he felt that the entire history of air travel since before he was born might have been set up as a hoax to prove that planes had to stop and refuel when actually planes didn't need to refuel. Now, that's just deeply irrational. That's just, I mean, that stopped me in my tracks. Chesterton has this this chapter in a book. It's called The Maniac. And he says, you know, like the person you can never out-argue is is in the sanatorium. I mean, he's using early 20th century language. He's like, because they'll always have a thing. Well, the Martians told you to say that. He's like, it's only when the gravity of reality breaks their explanatory power somehow. Other than that, it's just you can't, because they always are faster- I, then the then the, oh, the, oh, the, he was then the yeah I mean because he, the world he, they're describing is so small right I mean they have an answer for so you could use that with any discipline right it's all it's all he, modern he, disciplines are hoax he spends I mean that that's the thing if people come in there thinking that they're going to uh, knock them to their knees I mean they've spent all day every day thinking about this they have answers to anything you could bring up about a Foucault's pendulum or you know anything you bring up now it's not based in physics necessarily their answer but they've got a reason why uh it doesn't work but the you know you, are, are, are they are they fun i mean what are like okay at that conference right oh they were fun I mean, are people drinking Absolutely. at the hotel in the hotel lounge or people telling um, i mean is it is it, it is it, it, it was it was a celebratory atmosphere because you've got to understand something really important about them um, I think that most of them are, have not self-identified as flat earthers in their regular life. And so it's only when they come together at the conference that they can you know, reveal that and feel the peer reinforcement amongst others, which is why I, I wondered about what it was going to be like for me going in there. You know, was I going to be the, the spoiler? And I kept my mouth shut the first day, went to the sessions. The second day, I kind of came out as a philosopher of science. But I got a pretty good reception because – People thought that they could convince me. They thought that I was crazy or, you know, that, that I was one of them keeping the conspiracy or that I was duped and they were going to convince me. And, and I mean, face it, I'd be a big get, right? I've published a couple of books on science denial. If they could convince me, that would have been great. So it would be like so the I, evangelical I Christian. It would be like the evangelical Christian converting Dawkins or something, right? Like you, yeah, you, you would be, you could be right. an evangelist. You could be a platform evangelist. Oh yeah. I, I mean, and they, they, you know, they've had a couple of NBA players that they've converted. So, I mean, I won't say they were excited about it. I did get some funny looks but you know i didn't have anybody walk away and you know not want to talk to me either people people wanted to talk and you know i was treated with respect and i treated everyone else with respect you know that you don't change anybody's mind by going in and making fun of them or you know calling them names or you know treating them with with contempt and so i was uh, i was as respectful as i could be uh, of them as people but of course hard on the arguments because i you know where i felt that they were making a mistake we, we would do it. And, and I, and I always, you know, told people, this is who I am before we have this conversation, but it's, you know, it, it was a, it was a very thrilling event for me to be at as a, you know, somebody who studies uh, uh, science denial and informed my thinking 
for for my next book about how to change people's minds because it's it's very hard. I mean, people do sometimes change their minds about scientific topics, um, you know, about climate change, about uh, anti-vax, and and I just every time I see one of these cases, I read it, you know, carefully because it's really fascinating to me just professionally the nature of belief and what it takes people to change their belief. Yeah, and it seems to me that when ideas do identity work, it, it's hard, right? So like, so when, you know, part of, I think the anti-vax, the flat earth, the, I mean, to some degree climate change, cause it's, it, cause we're such a politically tribal culture that that's, you yeah. know, that, that and it, it seems that some of that is, is because the social identity sort of oh, yes. consequences, Absolutely. You, you, you cut, you die a social death. If, if all of a sudden you're telling, you know, you, you, and also you, you got, Obviously, you've got some kind of social inclusion or benefit from getting into it. You know, like it, it's a uh, so, yeah, that strikes me as a challenging thing. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, hang on a sec. You, you can you can leave them here. Do you, do you remember that? You remember that uh, uh, commentator on North Korea uh, who had his his little kid come in during his uh, his podcast? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My yeah. German Shepherd just came. Oh, <laughs> nice, yeah, nice. No yeah, okay. my my two so, pit bulls have to stay upstairs. They don't like it. They would like to be in the studio all day, but <laughs> he, he's he snuck out. So uh, uh, re-ask the question there, if you I, I, Yeah, I mean, isn't it isn't it a sense of like, it's hard because of the identity work? The, the, you know, there oh, are, the identity. There, yeah, yeah, there are there obviously a payoff yeah. too. Like you know, maybe you. There's something that gets people into something idiosyncratic like that, right? I mean, it's it's it's. I I agree. I mean, there's there's a there's a new book hasn't come out yet, but I I had the privilege of reading it in in advance uh, copy called The Know It All Society by uh, Michael P. Lynch, and it's it's about this. He really makes the case better than I've seen anybody ever make it about the idea that ident- that identity is a crucial part of belief, even empirical belief. And so when you're, you know, when you realize that climate change has become a partisan issue, you ask yourself why it's, it's because of identity. It's because to question it, you know, if, if you're on certain side of the political spectrum to, to question it is heresy and, and identity works too for, for anti-vax. I think that if you grow up, you know, there are certain pockets of anti-vax because people trust their neighbors. They trust their friends. They trust the, the family, the people that they, that they know. And if you look at the flat earthers, they trust one another. I mean, they're out there, uh, you know, they don't have much community, but they have community on their YouTube videos, you know, and then they get together for these, for these groups. So it, it is very strong, uh, I, and, and I think that's the challenge for somebody like me who cares about uh, facts and evidence and how it influences belief. Uh, how do I deal with the fact that some people's beliefs are not based on facts or evidence? It's based on identity. That that's a that that's a real challenge. Yeah, and I mean, I would guess like more disturbing to you is not the 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 flat earthers because they're sort of fringe. Anti vaxxers are a little more mainstream. But then, yeah. then also you just got people that are indifferent and often just make, re- I mean, there's a reason why a party got elected in Italy that was anti-vax when most yes. people that voted for them were probably radically anti-vax or anything like that. But people are no. just, there's just not a regard for the need for, as you said, the scientific attitude to kind of permeate our search for, you know, for yeah. our critical inquiry about the world. It's, it's really, you bring up a good point there because I think I'm going to do a paradigm shift here, a kind of a Kuhnian paradigm shift, because so many people these days have wondered, 
why aren't people's minds changed by facts? But to do the 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 Kuhnian shift there, it's really the amazing thing is that some people's mind the, the minds are changed by facts. I mean, science is very fragile. Science has not been around for most of human history, and you know if you think about how we evolved to to believe things uh, or trust, you know. What what was um, you know what was going to make sense to us based on who told us? Um, for most of history, uh, we trusted the other people that were close to us. The the very idea that we can have something that we want to believe is true, but test it, come up with empirical evidence, and then say no, that must be false. That's an amazing thing. I mean, that is an absolutely incredible thing. And if you look at the whole, you know, 200,000 year span of uh, Homo sapiens on this planet, it hasn't been around very long. And I mean, even then you got to add in the dark ages when, you know, they invented science, but then, you know, retreated on it. I mean, the, the idea, you know, the scientific revolution was not that many years ago. And it's, it's really, I, I think, you know, from that certain perspective, science is amazing and awesome. It's also fragile and it needs to be protected because the mindset that leads you to think that science is wonderful uh, is in danger now. It's in danger by all of the sorts of things that we've been talking about. So you, you say flat earthers aren't uh, aren't dangerous. Well, there's they're a small group. They're, they're maybe not dangerous in the sense that, uh, you know, AIDS deniers or, or uh, um, climate deniers or vaccine deniers are. But I mean, what happens when they run for school board? What happens when they want to, quote unquote, teach the controversy about flat earth? I mean, it's people laugh at first, but then it's not funny anymore. And plus, I think that all science denial is basically the same. It's all the same strategy. And, you know, you can look at the different pockets of belief, but it's all part of this uh, growing backlash against expertise, against authority, against facts and reality. And it's a very dangerous time we're living in. Yeah, I mean, it's this precarious tension you talk about in the book, right? In lots of philosophical inquiry, uh, the objective subjective poles, right? Where, where on one level, when people like the logical positivists or somebody are trying to have this sort of standard that, that, that eliminates subjectivity or the messiness of it, you, you, you kind of, you see the holes, but then sometimes you acknowledge responsibly the subjective messiness in anything, mm-hmm. and it goes too far at, at times. Right now, we see people crying for more objectivity. You know, and it's interestingly often the people that are most subjective today in public life are people that were decrying relativism just a generation ago. They, they, or the cultural right is now is now the often what's the, the, the decriers of relativism, well, it, relativism that are that are using relativism to sort of deny empirical reality it it, it switched lynn lynn cheney dick cheney's wife uh wrote a book in the 80s um i i forget the title i wish i could remember it off the top of my head but it was basically saying you know look at these relativists look at these subjectivists on the left look at these postmodernists. how terrible they are for questioning facts and reality and then what happened is that those tools ultimately got appropriated um, by the right. Um, I, I wrote an earlier book called Post-Truth, where I have a chapter on postmodernism, and I made the argument that although most of the postmodernists in the 80s, I mean, virtually all of them were left-wing, their tools of postmodernism about questioning objectivity, questioning facts, arguing that everything is political, uh, that's been very smoothly adopted by uh, folks on the right, such that I think they're now right-wing postmodernists. And, you know, I'm not claiming that Kellyanne Conway's reading Derrida, but 
the ideas permeate, right? The, it, because it's if you want to create your own political reality, um, that's the way to do it. You know, where where even if somebody has videotape that shows that you're wrong, you can sort of begin to claim that. Well, no, that's just your point of view. That'd be a great article title. Is Kellyanne Conway reading Derrida? <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. You know, the the challenge. I think you know we know so much more about the natural world and the empirical world in which to live than Aristotle did. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet he felt much more at home in the, in his world. Right. Like, I mean, and I wonder how much of that is when you, when teleological language uh, rightly in scientific method is taken, is taken out. uh, Like we know, we know we can ask deeper empirical questions, get more empirical knowledge. And yet I wonder how much, how, yeah. how how we get tele, like teleological purpose language in a way that doesn't intrude on the scientific science. attitude and, and scientific inquiry, yeah. and yet without some of those things, it seems that 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 life will seem. I mean, I, again, that's another pathway for nihilism. It seems if if there's not I, I, somehow I think, some connection. Yeah. I, I I think you're right. I mean, most people's attitude these days to science is it, it's a miracle. Look what they're able to do in healthcare, or rocket travel, or just with a plane. For goodness sakes, people don't know how their iPhones work. I mean, they don't feel connected with the sorts of technology or the sorts of ideas that scientists have produced that that they use every day. And so, you know, it's it's easy to in that sort of environment to all of a sudden be skeptical of the, you know, the one thing that clashes with the, you know, something that you care about, but then to go ahead and, and use the other things. But I, I think you bring up an important point there about this feeling of at-homeness. This is why I wish that scientists would say more about how they come up with their ideas. I, I, scientists just seem to be um, talking so much about their findings as if people understand statistics, as if people really get what it means to, you know, to make a qualified scientific statement. And, you know, then seem sort of surprised when people doubt it or worse, question their integrity, right? So I wish that scientists who, you know, who know full well that every scientific result is uncertain to a degree would talk about this, would talk about what that means, um, I, I just read something in, in Reuters the other day about how uh, climate change has now reached the five sigma level, which is one in a million. There's a one in a million chance that the climate change deniers are right. Well, that's not certainty, but I want to own that, right? I, I want the, I want that message to get out. In fact, I think that's even more. If somebody powerful. if somebody gave you that uh, those odds on, on, on uh, Vegas, uh, you'd get you yeah. you you'd, you'd, put the, you'd put the mortgage down. If you had one in a million chance of not hitting red thirty eight, you'd put the mortgage on your house down. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah. This this is the problem, and I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always here when when I I just saw that statistic the other day in Reuters, and it and it reminded me of the. Uh, the scene in the movie Dumb and Dumber, uh, where he's asking the girl to go out with him and she keeps saying, no, no, she won't go out with him. He keeps asking her every way and she keeps rejecting. And then he finally says, what are the chances? And she says, uh, one in a million. And he said, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's, that's it. That's the situation that science deniers are in. You're telling me there's a chance. And I think that scientists need to stop being embarrassed about uncertainty 
or, you know, getting hot under the collar when somebody says, well, do you have a hundred percent consensus? You know, there's not a hundred percent consensus on evolution. And I'm talking about among scientists, you never will get a hundred percent consensus. So stop being embarrassed by that and get out there and explain to people what probability means. Um, it's, it's easy for scientists, I think, to feel under attack and not want to do that, not want to engage. I'm here to tell you, because I did it at the Flat Earth Convention, there are people who want to engage and who are gettable. Um, Maybe not the people up on the stage doing the talks, but people in the audience who, you know, if there's nobody else to push back, there's nobody nobody else to hear. I mean, why not believe the expert who's up there on the stage who's spouting nonsense rather than the scientist who's down the street and refuses to come to the conference. Yeah, and I think that kind of posture would go a little bit away to kind of erode the wall between, you know, it, it, it's the sort of, the, the the kind of resentful expertise versus the sort of people that resent the expert, you know, you know, like, yeah. and sort of, you know, some, yeah, yeah I think if, 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 if scientists did, if practitioners did learn some of those communication skills, it might help bridge some of the gap. I mean, it's a two-way thing, you know, but yeah. It, no, no, it, it couldn't. And I mean, I, I don't misunderstand here. I'm not blaming it on scientists uh, uh, because, the, you know, the idea that, that they should have to go out and do this is, is really in some ways remarkable. And yet one thing that I'm very cheered by is to look at how the state of Washington has reacted to the anti-vax crisis. They started to send out public health officials in teams to talk to anti-vaxxers, sometimes one-on-one. And they're changing some minds. Some people you know, say things like, this was the first time that anybody ever really sat down with me and listened to my concerns. You know, uh, One woman uh, I read about reported a conversation with a public health official that took two hours in which she came away convinced that she was going to be able to safely vaccinate her child because she was able to express all of her concerns, have the person listen in a kind of a trustworthy manner, and then tell her, you know, what the actual facts were. That's what convinces people, you know, putting the hard facts in their face and, and telling them they're irrational doesn't work, but the one-on-one interaction really works. And I mean, look, I went to the March for Science here in Boston. There were thousands of science scientists and science students. I mean, they can mobilize, they, they can go out and do things, they can protest. If they can do that, they can engage with science deniers. And I'm not claiming we should give them equal time or give them a platform or something like that. I'm talking about you know doing more one-on-one work like the public health people in Washington state because I think that science denial has now reached really almost a level of crisis. Look what's happening with climate change in the U.S. Senate um, you know, or, or the White House for that matter. I mean, we've really got an existential threat there and science denial is standing in our way. Well, maybe it's like in so many things in human life, the empathetic attitude may be the key to spreading respect and esteem for the scientific attitude. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I, I hope, uh, I mean, I, and I hope that more scientists do it. One audience for my book is scientists. Uh, I, I, I have great, great respect for scientists, and I know that they don't always have great respect back for philosophers of science. But the account that I came up with is one that I think does honor to the the attitude and the values that they have, and one that if they become more comfortable in talking about it, they can use to convince people uh, who have anti-scientific beliefs. Yeah, it's a great book, and I, it was a fun read, and thanks for, oh, thank for, you. for writing it and taking some time to talk with me about it. 
Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Lee for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Scientific Attitude. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.